Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we're in a short mini-series of three sessions, three podcasts, interrupted by one last week, for which I apologize, but I hope you found it interesting. But three podcasts on the subject of money and wealth and investments and a whole bunch of other questions related to that. If you um, go back and take a look at the previous couple of episodes in this series, you'll notice that we've talked about the dangers of money in biblical terms, and there are a great many. And yet, at the same time, second of these podcasts, you'll notice that the Bible speaks very positively about money. Um, And so one of the challenges we've got to try and figure out is practically how do we uh, put those two perspectives to work in such a way that we're honouring all of the different things that the Bible says. Uh, Also, of course, the the related topic of financial planning or planning of any kind. Um, Scripture has a lot to say negatively about the presumptuousness of certain kinds of planning, whether it's uh, financial or otherwise, and yet at the same time, you've got to plan to do something. And uh, the Lord promises to bless righteous and faithful plans that are laid down prayerfully and thoughtfully. So what I want to do is to turn uh, as practical as I can, or perhaps I ought to say really as practically as uh, practically as I dare, because I'm conscious that uh, in speaking about one or two of these things, um, I'm getting towards the point where my professional competence uh, is not very strong. Um, it was kind of interesting to me uh, when um, I was doing a talk on this subject at uh, a, a camp for young people over the the new year period in January and I was talking about some of these things and one of the young people there came up and asked me for for advice about investments and we went back and forth a little bit until I realized he was actually wanting me to tell him the names of actual stocks that um, I thought he should buy and I refused to do so uh, I'm not going to be giving out investment investment advice um, but that said I do think it's important, um, so to speak, to build the bridge into those more specialised areas of financial and professional expertise from a biblical direction in the hope that people who do have more specialist competence in those domains will be able to pick up those threads and articulate their implications in relation to more granular and detailed aspects of people's investment choices and financial choices and so on. To put it another way, um, from uh, the point of view of being a pastor uh, and a teacher of scripture, I want to try and articulate what what scripture says that might bear on questions like, how do you save for the the future? How do you invest? And so on and so forth. And the the nitty gritty details of what that actually looks like um, takes me out of water in which I can uh, rest my feet comfortably on the bottom and into depths that are way beyond me. And I'm going to leave those decisions to um, other people and uh, that analysis to people who are more competent in it than me. So we'll start with some basic um, biblical principles that have to do with the practicalities of planning for your future. Um, by the, the end of the previous um uh, podcast in this little series, you've got to the point of thinking, okay, I need to plan for the future. I need to plan for, to provide for myself. It will be a good thing to have money so I can provide for myself so that I can give generously and support others. And there are many other good things that can be done with money, provided that the dangers of it are avoided. And so there's three or four things, three or four areas that I want to cover. And the first is very simple. Dishonest gain will be cursed by the Lord. Uh, all of you young people who are watching this, Um, need uh, at some point to reckon with the danger, the temptation of trying to get money or keep money sinfully. Um, It will be cursed by the Lord if you try to do that. You think about the the book of Proverbs is full of this kind of thing. Proverbs 10.2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. 
The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, chapter 10, verse 3, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. It's interesting that the false balance there in um, Proverbs 11, 1, would have been used to deceive your fellow Israelites back in the ancient Israelite world. In the marketplace, you'd be trying to rip somebody off by um, selling them less than they thought they were buying and that kind of thing. Uh, this is the uh, the verdict of the Lord on that kind of behavior. It's an abomination. That's a very, very strong word used to describe the most grievous of sins. And here it's used to describe a man or woman who tries to rip off his fellow Israelite or some other trader, some non-Israelite who happens to be wandering through and is unfortunate enough to come across him. It's also worth saying, of course, that um, it's not just um, people directly that we might um, try to withhold um, money from, which is their due. We might also find ourselves tempted at various points to withhold uh, that which is due to our civil authorities. And depending on um, the tax regime you happen to be operating in, this may be more or less tempting. Um, I've just got to say, um, in response to that, um, a couple of things. Firstly, of course, there will be times where we may feel, rightly or wrongly, that the tax regime we're living in is unjust. Um, it's quite easy to see how many of the tax regimes that are in operation in the Western world today are unjust, at least in biblical terms, where uh, according to 1 Samuel 8, a 10% tax would be extremely high. So goodness knows what Samuel would have thought if he'd uh, lived in modern America or uh, anywhere else in the modern world. Um, but it's intriguing that scripture uh, urges us to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. And let me tell you, um, one of the things that I noticed on moving to the US from the UK, there are many, many differences. Um, and many things um, in the US are in lots of ways, nicer than the UK. Um, the the politeness of people in the streets of Fort Worth is somewhat uh, greater than that in London. London tends to be a somewhat cold place and people hardly ever know their neighbours. Uh, never mind people sort of greeting people in the street. Um, people in the streets of Texas, if you bump into them in the, in, in, or if you meet them in the store or something, the assistants who are helping you are always very polite. But I have not found that the Inland Revenue Service here is any more gracious any more forgiving, uh, liable to cut you any more slack than Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. It seems to me that tax authorities the world over are among the most unrelenting, unforgiving and brutal uh, authorities um, and departments of our civil government. Um, and not only are we running the risk if we think we can shortchange the IRS of um, incurring God's displeasure by failing to pay to our rulers uh, the tax that is due to them according to their laws, just or unjust as they may be, we are running the risk of running headlong into a freight train that will not bend or show mercy or kindness to us. And so the, the likelihood of treasures gained by that particular route profiting us is very slim indeed. There, there, too many people have discovered the truth of that proverb the hard way as the, in the revenue services landed on them like a ton of bricks. So please, please, please don't imagine, especially you young people who have still got all these financial decisions ahead of you, that one way to increase your wealth is by withholding taxes that are levied against you. Second, tithe to the Lord and give to the poor. It is remarkable how concerned the Lord is for the poor. And one, one uh, reading of the Old Testament prophetic literature, especially the later writing prophets, is that the Lord's concern for the poor uh, 
is so great that um, the uh, he will find some way of providing for them, uh, even if it involves striking the rich with curses in the form of famine or um, invasion by foreign armies. And it's interesting, the, the priority that is placed upon tithing, um, think of the book of Malachi, uh, will a man rob God? Well, you're robbing me. And the people ask, well, how are we robbing you? The answer is in your tithes and contributions. Your tithes are not uh, the full tithe you ought to be giving. Uh, Haggai, in chapter one, is um, addressing a bunch of people who have all kinds of uh, work to do in rebuilding their homes in the land of Israel into which they've just moved. And the prophet castigates them because they've prioritized their own uh, building renovations above rebuilding the house of the Lord. And it is very easy to see, just at the most superficial and obvious level, um, how we could um, get our priorities the wrong way around that way. You know, I, I'm not sure I can uh, make the contribution to the work of the Lord that I'm committed to uh, under what scripture says about tithing. I'm not sure I can do it this month because I've got something else I need to spend the money on. I need to build my panelled houses, Haggai chapter one. Well, um, that, in, that brings something close to ruin upon that people until they repent and turn from those evil ways and start giving to the Lord and his work what is due to him. One way of thinking about the tithe, in fact, is that it's that portion of our increase which is given to us specifically for the purpose of giving it back to the Lord. We have the privilege of handling it on the way to it being given back to God, to whom it actually belongs. It doesn't belong to us in any other respect. Uh, Pastor Neil, um, when I first moved to All Saints here in Fort Worth, I noticed a, an aspect of the liturgy that Pastor Neil employs at that part of the service when he's talking about the giving of the tithes. And he says, uh, let's present to the Lord his tithes and our offerings, which is fascinating in the sense that it's such a precise and accurate biblically oriented way of highlighting the fact that the tithes do not belong to us. Additional offerings do. And of course, we're welcome to give above the tithe for whatever purpose we might wish to. But the tithes are actually his, his tithes and our offerings. On the subject of those um, free will offerings, um, I'm always struck by Proverbs 11 verses 24 to 26, where Solomon observes, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. It just seems to be what the inspired spirit-inspired author of scripture has observed at that point. The Lord uh, blesses with greater riches those who give freely, and yet those who cling to what they already have and are not generous with it seem to suffer want. That seems to be how the Lord's providence works. And the, the proverb, uh, that section of the Proverbs continues, uh, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. So the, the giving in verse 24 and the being willing to sell, verse 26, uh, both alike are blessed by the Lord as ways in which God provides for the giver and the seller, as well as the one who receives and buys. So um, if you're not tithing to the Lord and not giving to the poor, not only will you be displeasing God, but you'll be imperiling your own financial future. And I wonder on the last day, I don't know the answer to this question, but I wonder on the last day, how many of, as we look back over the whole of human history and we look back over people um, uh, within uh, the people of God, maybe we look back over our own lives, 
and we look at times where we have uh, suffered want, I wonder how many of those we will be able to trace with the perspective that comes from looking back at the end of history. We will be able to trace to our own lack of generosity or perhaps our, even our own lack of tithing. That's not to say, of course, that uh, everybody who ever suffers poverty is being judged because they didn't tithe. That's not true at all. I'm not saying at all that every instance like that will be able to be explained in that way. But I wonder how many will. Those proverbs seem to suggest that some will, at least. So then, dishonest gain and tithing and giving. Let me talk a little bit now about um, investments, which is a topic that I have um, uh, alluded to a few times previously. Uh, and I'm conscious that the further I get into it, um, the further I get away from things I have any professional or vocational expertise in. And I'm going to just indicate in a minute or two's time where the boundary of my ignorance is. Um, and I'll go no further than that. But um, first, in thinking about investments, I want to talk about the, the most obvious investment in the most obvious asset that all of us possess, and that's ourselves. I can't remember where I read this. It was in some uh, economics uh, book, I think. Um, but it's an obvious biblical point as well, although the scripture would articulate in different ways, that our greatest financial asset is ourselves. The greatest thing that we have, which has the capacity to return income, money which will allow us to live and support a family and support others and to give generously to others, the, the single most significant asset we have which will allow us to do that is our own time, our own competence, and our own labour. And so what that means is that the first and most significant uh, way of, so to speak, investing for our future is simply in working hard. And uh, perhaps equivalently for those who are um, younger and still uh, spending most of their time studying, uh, studying hard. It's worth saying a word or two about um, studying at this point. Um, there has been a great rediscovery in our Christian circles in recent years on the, uh, the significance of education as a, as a way of forming character deepening our understanding of the glory of the world God has put us in, shaping us as human beings so that we're equipped to please God and to live for God and to love God with all our hearts and our souls and our minds. And all that is absolutely true. I'm deeply, deeply thankful to God that uh, my wife Nicole and I um, encountered by God's grace um, writings which emphasise that aspect of education before we made decisions concerning our children's education because it meant that from the earliest stages of our kids' educations we were able to try as best we could to uh, shape what we were teaching them and what they were learning in such a way that we were really trying in one way or another to aim at the whole of their character. We weren't just thinking of education as vocational training for their career. We were thinking of education as much more broad than that, in encompassing um, learning to love the Lord and his works with all of our minds and our hearts. Yet having said that, we must be careful that the pendulum doesn't swing all the way back the other way. Because at some point, we all have to earn a living. And actually, more than we all have to earn a living, it's a profoundly good thing. It's a profoundly godly thing to be in the position that you're able to earn a living for your family. Um, to put it another way, one aspect of the character, the whole of life character that we ought to be aiming all of our education at is the ability to go out to work and 
productively spend our time so that we can bring back an income or whatever it is um, for our families. Um, and we don't want to forget about this in the throes of all our concern about the significance of um, other really important aspects of education. So you young people, um, some of you will be listening to this, you're thinking about what you're doing now in your school years or when you're being educated at home or perhaps you're at college. I'd like to encourage you to think about these years like this. What's happened is your parents have graciously and generously protected you from the consequences of your complete lack of economic productivity so that you can invest for the future so that you're more able to provide for yourself then. Think of it another way around. Um, think of it negatively. Imagine if your parents had had no resources at all um, and they needed like, every moment of their time and every moment of your time in order to earn enough money to live to provide for you. Well, you would have had to do what most young people, most children have had to do throughout the whole history of the world, which is go out to work to earn something for your family from a very young age. It was very common until not much more than 100 years ago in the West. And it's still very common today in many parts of the world for children as young as 10 or even younger, six or seven, um, to be working somewhere to provide income or food or subsistence or something for their family. The families do not have the luxury of setting aside years of their children's lives just so their children can be economically unproductive for that period of time, investing for their own future. You do have that luxury. You don't have to earn a penny. All you get to do is to spend your parents' money on your education, whether directly or indirectly. And if you think about it in that way, my hope would be that it will change your orientation towards your schoolwork. Every single day when you get up and head out to school, something to have in your mind is, my goodness, my uh, my mum is looking after everything to do with the home. My dad is out at work, if that's the pattern you're, the family are in. My dad's out at work earning money so that I can go and do math and physics and history and learn to uh, understand literature and uh, do some chemistry or I can study on my engineering course at college or wherever it is so that I can get to do all these things to invest for my future. I get to do things which don't bring any money in so that I can provide for myself and for others in future. And if, if you approach your education in that way, I suspect it could, in some cases, make you somewhat more purposeful uh, and clear-headed about what you're trying to achieve. You are trying to achieve, of course, the well-rounded character of a man, a woman, who knows and loves the Lord, uh, and knows all the ways of the Lord, um, is familiar with the scriptures and with other great literature and history and geography and art and culture and science and math and all those all the things that human beings have done over the uh, over the years to explore and understand the world you're trying to do that and as part of that you're trying to put yourself in a position where you can work productively so work as hard as you possibly can in those years and of course when you get out of those years into um, the world of work so to speak um, there you are again. You're in a context whereby working hard, you can produce a, uh, uh, a return on your the investment of your time for your family. So there's another context in which working hard is simply just a biblical requirement. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. I always think of um, 
I think it's Ecclesiastes 9, 10. Um, whatever your hand finds to do, work at it with all your might, with all your strength. Um, I've spoken here about um, uh, work in the sense of financial remunerative work in adulthood. I'm conscious, of course, that uh, lots of people's work uh, in adulthood is not remunerative for all of the time. And particularly, uh, many young ladies, as you're planning for the future, uh, which we discovered in the last podcast in this series, is a good thing for you to do. Many of you young ladies will be planning for a future in which, on the one hand, you're thinking, okay, I've I'm doing this academic work at school or I'm doing some other kind of work in my teenage years and or young adulthood, thinking of training for some kind of paid vocation. And at the same time, you may have your eyes, or you should, I hope you will have your eyes, on another possible strand to your future, which will be as a mother, which in many, not all, but in many cases will mean that over the course of your adult life, say from 20 to however old you live, um, you'll spend fewer years in full-time paid work. To put it another way, uh, for women, more often your vocation is likely to involve more years of unpaid, though tremendously valuable, childcare and child raising than for women, uh, than for men, sorry. Now, one of the things this uh, uh, raises is that profoundly difficult challenge of working out, okay, so how much do you decide to invest in your academic training, your future training, uh, knowing that if you incur some huge amount of debt in, uh, let's say, going to college, um, you're less likely to be able to pay it back so easily from your earnings throughout your working life than somebody um, who uh, is a man and who, if he has children, is more likely nonetheless to spend more of the time in the world of work than um, he is at home. Now, in making this observation, I'm not making any value judgment necessarily on which those decisions a person takes. As it happens, I think scripture does encourage people to follow um, one course rather than another in, in most cases. I'm simply making an observation of of fact. This is just an inescapable fact of the way society is ordered. And even today in the West, in a context where the distinctions between men and women have been challenged wrongly in all kinds of ways in the secular world, it's nonetheless the case that still women spend fewer years on average in the world of paid work than men do. And so that's got to impact the decisions you make about how much money you invest in your education in your young adulthood, in particular the vexed question of how much money you spend um, going to college. Some college degrees are really expensive. Uh, should you pay all that money for a college degree when you're not going to work enough to pay it back? Or you might not work so much before, let's say, you hope you'll get married and have children. So what do you do? Well, let me tell you, the first thing is I've noticed that um, there's no easy answer to this question. And, and I encourage you not to embrace an easy and straightforward answer to this question. I have um, uh, grown a little frustrated, I have to say, with what I think are extremely simplistic solutions to this problem, which often take the form of women shouldn't go to college, or, well, men and women are just the same, so it doesn't make any difference. It seems to me that both of those claims are too simplistic and in some cases just simply wrong. Um, and the uh, 
the solution, if, if it can be called that, to um, dealing with this issue is to work through the uh, complexities of your individual situation, if you're in this situation, one step at a time, bearing in mind the particular options that are open to you. And that's really the key thing. People's circumstances, people's gifts, people's uh, temperaments, people's desires, the stage you are at life, in, in life, how much money you have, and so on. All these things are very different for different people. And I would just encourage you to look really, really carefully and thoughtfully, actually, whether you're a man or a woman, at the likely return on your investment, given the likely futures that you may have in front of you. In that sense, this whole uh, question applies equally to men, just as it does to women. Any man has got to think, before he shells out $200,000 on a university degree, is this a good investment, given the likely future I'm going to have? And a woman has to ask and answer exactly the same question, but with different parameters that may bear on the likely future they're going to have. I encourage you not to be simplistic and embrace what might seem at first like a reassuringly simple answer, um, but will actually do you harm in the long term. Rather, think carefully, get advice, talk to your parents, talk to your pastor, talk to other people. Don't be embarrassed to talk about this and try and work through the details of your situation. Because in the end, you want to invest in your time, your education, um, uh, your training, your future, so that you're able to produce a return on your investments in yourself. Now, that brings us to the final topic. And I want to spend just a very short amount of time on this because the word investments is also used in connection with um, not just investing in our time, but more commonly investing in other uh, financial products, investing in other companies, investing in stocks and bonds, um, investing in other more speculative investments, investing in commodities, gold, oil, and so on, investing in cryptocurrency nowadays. And I want to just give you a couple of thoughts about how we should evaluate in biblical terms the significance of these different kinds of investments. And I want to, if I can just give you a couple of examples, well, no, first up, a broad-based principle, and then just a couple of examples which illustrate it. It seems to me that in biblical terms, uh, it's a perfectly uh, comprehensible thing to do to say that I'm going to invest a certain amount of my assets in, my, in myself with the hope of getting a return and a certain amount of my assets in other people in the hope of getting a return. So, for example, uh, a, man, uh, a man and woman uh, with a couple of kids might say, well, I've got a certain amount of financial um, assets. I'm going to put some in my children in the hope that by educating them, I'm going to uh, gain a return on that investment, in this case, in them. But at the same time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest something else, uh, another I don't know, few thousand dollars or whatever it is, in somebody else's work in the form of uh, buying shares in a company or uh, lending money to a startup company or whatever else it is. And in, in biblical terms, it's, it's a comprehensible thing to do because you can invest your money in your own work or you can invest it in somebody else's work. And so let's say that you've got a friend who wants um, to set up a, a pizza shop somewhere in uh, your local town. Um, he's got a business plan. It seems workable. He needs $100,000 and you've got 10000 that is. 
Um, and he offers you a 10% share of the business in order, in return for $10,000. If you thought the business plan was great, you could invest that in his future hard work in the hope of gaining a return from it. And really, as far as I can make out, that seems to be the way in which the most responsible uh, articulations of what investing in the stock market, quote unquote, is all about. You're buying a share in other people's businesses, which means you're buying a share in the returns from their work. Now, obviously, there are a whole bunch of different ways of doing that. Uh, very commonly, as many of you will know far better than me, people will buy a vast basket of different shares in a whole range of different companies uh, via an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund or something like that. That seems to me comprehensible and, and make, seems to make sense. What you're doing there is recognizing, when well, this is another biblical principle, recognizing your ignorance, um, recognizing that you're not really in a position to uh, figure out which is the very best company to put your money into. So you put a tiny amount in hundreds of different companies, recognizing that probably a rising tide will lift all boats at roughly the same rate. And therefore, even if some of those companies don't do so well, others will do much better and it'll kind of all even out in the end and you'll probably be fine. That seems to me a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It actually embodies a biblical principle of recognizing our own lack of understanding of uh every aspect of the way the world works. And if you recognize you don't understand, what do you do? Well, you don't take risks punting on something that's a kind of a narrow and speculative choice. Rather, you would um, uh, spread the risk, so to speak, um, and uh, in that way, accommodate to your own lack of understanding. And accommodating to your own lack of understanding is a wise thing to do. Um, I'm less sure, in truth, what I think about other kinds of investments and at this point, I'm going to draw a line very firmly um, in uh, making comments about the financial or investment viability of them. This is not investment advice. I guess what I'm saying, though, is it's harder for me to understand in biblical terms and to articulate in biblical terms what exactly somebody is buying if they are buying, let's say, um, commodities like gold or if they are buying um, something like Bitcoin. Um, I can understand what's going on. In effect, what somebody's doing, it's a, um, you're, take, you're, you're buying something now at a certain price on the expectation or in the hope that at some point in the future, somebody else will pay more for it than you paid for it. And within that framework, something like um, Bitcoin investment might be something that somebody does because it's so volatile, it goes up and down so much that at some point you could make a lot of money. Or it might be, it might arise from your convictions about the likely future of currencies. You might think, and there are some books that have been written on this subject, that the, the price of Bitcoin will eventually stabilize much more than it has done at the moment. So that people will consistently pay uh, a certain amount for it, which is more than what you can now buy Bitcoin for. I get that. That makes sense. It's it's a little harder, um, for me at least, to see how that relates in biblical terms to the idea of investing in somebody else's work. I don't think it necessarily means that's a bad thing to do. In fact, far from it. It might be a wise thing to do because you're just, uh, you have a certain evaluation of a certain financial product. But notice what you're doing with it is not the same thing as you're doing when you're investing in somebody else's business or investing in your own. Um, uh, similarly, something like gold. I mean, in effect, uh, gold has often been regarded as a hedge against inflation, where inflation has been produced by certain 
um, government attitudes to money and monetary policy and so on. And again, within that frame, we can make sense as a part of somebody's uh, investment portfolio. But it's not the kind of thing, it doesn't pay a dividend. You know, um, it, you're, somebody who buys gold is doing so in the hope that at some point in the future, somebody else will pay more for it than whatever it was they paid for it themselves when they bought it. Um, so uh, what I'm not saying is those kinds of investments are bad. Absolutely far from it. I'm not saying they're good either. I'm saying nothing about them being good or bad. I'm simply making the observation that from a biblical standpoint, it's not possible to evaluate and describe them and make sense of them, to comprehend them in quite the same way as it's possible to comprehend the process of investing in somebody else's um, labour, which is what buying a share in somebody else's company is effectively doing. So I hope that kind of makes some sense. Um, notice, please, what I'm not doing. As I want to emphasise this again. I'm going to close with this. I'm not giving investment advice. I'm not saying that certain things are good investments or bad investments. I'm certainly not saying that certain products are immoral investments. Really what I'm saying is um, if you are going to invest in another company, I can explain what you're doing in biblical terms. And it seems to make sense in biblical terms. If you're investing in a commodity or a cryptocurrency or uh, something more speculative, I encourage you to do what I'd encourage anybody to do and get specialist financial advice because you'd need to recognize that what you're doing can't be uh, described in biblical terms, at least in the way that those other kinds of more traditional investments can. And that's really the final thing I want to say to on, on this subject. Um, I am conscious that my understanding of these matters is very limited. Now, what's the wise thing to do when you realise your understanding of something that is significant to you is limited? The answer is you get advice, get advice, get advice. Um, I know lots of people who regret putting money into investments that have done badly because they turned out to be foolish or even scam investments. I know lots of people, sadly, who regret that. I haven't actually ever met anybody in my entire life who has regretted paying money to get advice about investments. And I think that might be a helpful lesson for us to um, uh, finish with, just the value of recognising our foolishness, uh, recognising that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Um, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And my prayer, I mean this quite sincerely, my prayer for you, if you're watching this, is that when you come to these uh, decisions that I, as a pastor, cannot help you with, I pray that you recognise firstly that there is potential here to do things that are very good and very wise, will actually increase your wealth in a way which allows you to do good with it, provided that you guard yourself against some of the temptations that we had talked about in the previous uh, podcasts. But I pray that you get advice so that you're able to do that well and wisely. And you recognise, as I've certainly had to recognise, where your expertise stops and you get advice from that point on. That is all I think I want to say about this subject. I think we're done. So I will leave you now. I hope it's been helpful. Lord bless you and see you very soon. Bye for now.